Jimmy Nickel was sleeping on a worn couch in his London flat. Piles of music equipment loomed in almost every corner. He and a couple of bandmates were crashing after yet another all-nighter at the Flamingo nightclub. Beer bottles, drumsticks, and several overflowing ashtrays sat on the coffee table. The needle of the record player still spun on the dead wax after completing a record hours earlier. The ringing phone startled Jimmy awake. He panicked. Did he have a studio session today? As he reached for the phone, his body ached from drumming all night. He did his best to sound alert and not hungover in the slightest. Hello? A wave of relief passed over him when he realized that on the other end was Georgie Fame, the frontman for the band he was currently drumming for. But after a few moments of Fame talking, his jaw dropped. He stood up and paced around the room. After the talk ended, he hung the phone up, dumbfounded. After the first conversation, the phone immediately rang again. Jimmy quickly answered. His excited responses to whoever was on the other line eventually woke up his friends crashing in his flat. Finally, after the strange onslaught of phone calls, his friends asked who had called. The Beatles, Jimmy said. They need a drummer. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 68, The Fifth Beatle. James George Nicholl was born in central England in 1939, exactly one month before Britain entered the Second World War. He spent his infancy during the Blitz and during many trips from cradle to bomb shelter. Jimmy Nicholl was only five years old when the war ended. He started school just as post-war England did its best to return to some form of normalcy. Early on, Jimmy was known as a contrarian. He was always happy to provide nearby adults his opinions on anything and insisted on tying his shoes from the top down instead of bottom up. Perhaps to contend with Jimmy's rebellious spirit, his parents enlisted him in the Army Cadet Force, similar to the U.S. Boy Scouts. This is where he first fell in love with music. He joined the Cadet Force Band as a drummer and never looked back. At age 14, Jimmy went to a pawn shop and bought a drum set of his own, much to the chagrin of his family's neighbors. The popular radio station he listened to began playing hits from the United States, and Nickel immediately fell in love with Duke Ellington and Chuck Berry. Jimmy found himself glued to the radio and listened in real time as the popular genres of jazz, skiffle, folk, and R&B morphed into something else entirely. The disc jockeys didn't know what to call it. Jimmy Nickel was entranced. He spent most of his days practicing drums and trying to mimic this new wave of music from the radio. By 17, he told his parents that he was moving to London to try and make a career with his drumsticks. His father was angry, but his mother supported him. Nichols soon found himself in the grimy alleys of London's burgeoning music scene. He got a flat above a music store in the West End and became a constant patron of the Soho coffee houses, specifically the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. There, hundreds of British beatniks and bohemians piled into minuscule basements like sardines and watched new acts of young musicians play songs that would disgust each and every one of their parents. The rebel youth styled themselves after the new American pop culture icons, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, James Dean. In their tight blue jeans and leather jackets, they took turns performing and listening all night, fueled by the caffeine from the coffee house above. 
Jimmy Nickel only watched at first, but after months of carrying other bands' equipment, he was allowed on stage to play drums for one of the acts. He felt the energy coursing through the room like electricity. Every tap of the snare, every clash of the cymbal, every beat of the bass sent another current through the smoky room. Jimmy was suddenly lost in the music, and he gave himself over to it, surrendering to the musical flow state. He was hooked. The aura of this era was rebellious but welcoming. Non-conformity became the norm. The music of the day practically begged up-and-coming musicians to experiment. The cream rose to the top. And then, the businessmen came. Potential band managers, each eager to become the man behind the curtain, lurked in the background of these shows. Some of these kids just had it, an unexplainable charisma that brought audiences to the verge of hysteria. Soon these older power brokers began establishing stables of talent. Record labels sprang up around London. Bands were renamed. Leading men were renamed. Roy Taylor became Vince Eager. John Askew became Johnny Gentle. Ray Howard became Duffy Power. Tom Hicks became Tommy Steele. After these leading men were plucked from the coffee houses, their old bandmates, usually schoolmates and childhood friends, often didn't make the cut. They would need an ensemble of the best of the best around them. The labels held open auditions. So, one day, the sure-handed percussionist Jimmy Nickel decided to try his luck. He played for manager Larry Parnas, who was managing a leading man named Colin Hicks, a very young singer with a clean-cut, more 1950s look. Parnas was pleased with Nichols' drumming and hired him to be the drummer for Colin Hicks and his cabin boys. The British may forgive us Bunker Hill and the tea bit in Boston, but they may hold rock and roll against us forever. And they'll be so right. They mostly played rocked-up swing, jazz, and skiffle music, not quite rock and roll. Their hits were covers of songs like Giddy Up a Ding Dong, with the baby-faced Colin Hicks dancing like Elvis front and center. In 1958, the band hit the recording studio. Despite the fairly tame songs, Jimmy Nickel does get a drum solo in one of them, lasting 55 seconds, which was unheard of at the time. Around this time, Colin Hicks and his cabin boys were slated for a minor European tour. Jimmy then proposed to his longtime girlfriend, Patty. The boys toured Italy in the summer of 1958, the tour would double as Jimmy and Patty's honeymoon. By 1959, the paychecks were arriving with less regularity. One band member quit, Patty was pregnant, so with little fanfare, the band slowly broke up and headed back to England. Once back in London, Jimmy did session work and repaired drum kits at the local music store. Steady income provided stability for his wife and newborn son, Howard. He enjoyed this security for a while before accepting another drumming role and yet another Larry Parnas band, Vince Eager and the Quiet Three. As one of said Quiet Three, Jimmy found the music anything but. There was energy. The crowds were younger and rowdier as they toured around London. However, a problem emerged for Jimmy in the form of a letter from the government. The national service system required one year of military service from all able-bodied men. Jimmy did not have an academic or occupational excuse and was staring down the barrel of one year of military service, with potentially five more in the reserves. With tension heating up in Korea, 
Jimmy could lose the prime of his life to military service. So, the band members formulated a plan. The night before the medical examination date on the draft notice, Jimmy got more drunk than he ever had in his entire life. He vomited several times, did not sleep at all, and then reported to the medical facility with bags under his eyes and a hangover from hell. After the brief examination, Jimmy was deemed unfit for military service and had successfully dodged the draft. Throughout 1959, Vince Eager and the Quiet Three played in coffee houses, dance halls, bars, ballrooms, theaters, and resorts across England. Vince Eager proved to be a capable leading man, mixing jazz, pop, big band, and even elements of vaudeville to create something wholly unique. The kind of music that they were playing was now starting to be called rock and roll. Between tours, Jimmy did session work in recording studios, but frequently found himself dutifully kissing his wife before hitting the road for yet another concert. In early 1960, Vince Eager and the Quiet Three played with the phenomenal up-and-coming musician Eddie Cochran. Cochran was a bright-eyed American singer-songwriter who seemed 10 steps ahead of anyone else. Son, you gotta work late. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do, but there ain't no cure for the summertime blues. In the studio, he experimented with multi-track recording, distortion techniques, and overdubbing. He asked Jimmy and the band if they would fly out to Los Angeles and record an album with him after the tour. They said they'd love to. But on April 16th, 1960, Eddie Cochran was in the back of a cab driving too fast in the rain. The driver swerved, spun out, and crashed. Eddie was ejected from the car, and he died in the hospital the next day. The generational talent, who is today regarded as one of the fathers of rock and roll, was only 21 years old. The band attended his funeral, and from that day forward, always wondered what could have been. It was at this time that manager Larry Parnas hired on an up-and-coming band to round out a small Scottish tour. They were called the Silver Beatles. These kids from Liverpool seemed pretty good, but Parnas did not deem them worthy enough for a long-term record deal. Jimmy spent the very early 1960s in the recording studio. Reliable session musicians were very much in demand, and Nickel, who lived close by the Pie recording studio, fit the bill perfectly. Soon, Jimmy had joined in on a new concept called Top 6 Records. The producers and session musicians would try to guess which songs would top the upcoming charts, then would record them with their own bands and then sell the records on the cheap. They figured that when you got six hits for the price of one, it didn't matter that the songs were not played by the original bands. By 1964, the top of the charts were filled with songs by a band that manager Parnas and Pie Records had passed up on, the Silver Beatles. Now just the Beatles. Soon, the top six hits were almost always Beatles songs. Jimmy Nickel couldn't complain. He loved Ringo Starr's parts. Unlike many of the drummers of his day, Ringo actually seemed to play with some style and intention, 
beyond just providing a rigid, rhythmic backbone for the rest of the band to shine. Top Six Records released a full-length album called Beatlemania in 1964, with Jimmy playing Ringo's parts to perfection. While getting plenty of session work, Jimmy still found time to begin establishing a band of his own. He had been listening to music from around the world and expanding his tastes. He was particularly fond of experimental jazz and Caribbean music that was in the process of turning into reggae. He believed he could be the man to synthesize these elements into pop hits. He formed a band he called the Shub Dubs. With the little money he had saved up, much to the chagrin of his wife, he paid band members and reserved studio time. The single they assembled was a minor hit, but not enough to break even. The B-side of the record, called Night Train, showcased Jimmy's swaggering drumming style, and through the lens of the early 60s, it was ahead of its time. But to make ends meet for his young family, Nickel spent most of his time in one studio or another, providing a steady drum beat for whoever might need it. Little did Jimmy know, one of these sessions was attended by the esteemed Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, who sat in the producer's booth in a dark overcoat, watching the musicians play in the crowded studio. He noticed that this Jimmy Nickel on drums had already memorized the music and was gazing around the room at the other musicians as they played. This chance meeting would change the entire course of Nickel's life. For Jimmy, the session work soon became repetitive and tedious, and he sought out any gig where he didn't have to be a hired gun in a stuffy studio. He found his chance in May of 1964. Up-and-coming frontman Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames found themselves in a pinch when their drummer's continual health problems began affecting his drumming. They were rising up in the charts, and they needed a stand-in. Jimmy Nichols' name came up, and Georgie offered the drum set to Nichol, who accepted almost before Fame could finish the offer. During this time, political and sex scandals rocked England. The sexual revolution was in full swing. The smell of marijuana lingered in nearly every green room in London. New genres were being created, and old genres were being defied. The entire London music scene had an electricity in the air, and Jimmy Nichol suddenly found himself right in the middle of it. Every evening, the Blue Flames would take the stage in some smoke-filled coffee house or nightclub and play for the wild crowds filled with raucous Londoners, immigrants from the West Indies, and stationed American GIs. Other prominent bands would stop by to watch the Blue Flames, including several members of the Rolling Stones and The Who. Paul McCartney was even known to frequent their shows. They would play all night, literally. Most of the time they'd finish around sunrise, the last few hours often turned into an extended jam session, which Jimmy enjoyed the most. Feeling the music, the flow, the improvisation, the intimacy between an ensemble playing as one. Jimmy would then return home to sleep through the day, or sober up enough to drum for a session in the studio. Jimmy's wife Patty was not happy with the late nights, but could not argue with the money Jimmy was bringing in. He was actually making a living as a musician in London, while most of his contemporaries were of the starving artist variety. It was during this maelstrom of all-nighters and session work that Jimmy received that fateful phone call in his flat. Brian Epstein and the other people on the Beatles' management team had been planning an international tour for months now. The details and contingency plans rivaled the D-Day invasion. But now, they had a problem. Ringo Starr had fainted during a photo shoot 
and after a trip to the hospital, he was quickly diagnosed with tonsillitis. Canceling the tour was not an option. The tickets were already sold out, merchandise was stocked, his pop group was on fire, on their way to conquering the world, and Epstein couldn't let a random illness end it all. He knew there was no turning back. With less than 24 hours until the tour was scheduled to begin, Epstein knew he had to work quickly to find a backup drummer. When Ringo fell ill, George Harrison immediately assumed the tour was off, and when Epstein, Lennon, and McCartney began speaking of possible replacements, the always loyal Harrison was furious. When given the option of a replacement, Harrison made a stand, saying, quote, The Beatles are John, Paul, George, and Ringo. If it's not us four, it's not the Beatles. If Ringo's not going, then neither am I. You can find two replacements. Unquote. John Lennon and Brian Epstein went about coaxing Harrison into accepting playing with a stand-in drummer. Meanwhile, Paul made a call to George Fame. Hey Georgie, Ringo's sick. Can we borrow your boy Jimmy for a bit? Of course you can, Paul, Georgie replied. After Harrison had been convinced that they would be letting the legions of international Beatles fans down and potentially lose hundreds of thousands of dollars if they canceled the tour, he relented. Georgie Fame made a call to Jimmy Nickel before the Beatles even could. Do you have a passport, he asked. What for? Jimmy replied groggily. Ringo Starr is sick in the hospital, and the Beatles need a replacement for the first leg of their world tour. I'd head to the post office for a passport if I were you. Jimmy Nickel nearly dropped the phone. The next few hours were filled with phone calls from Paul McCartney, manager Brian Epstein, and producer George Martin. Meet us at Abbey Road Studios at 3pm. The Beatles want to run some numbers with you. As Jimmy fought through the fog of his hangover, he could not believe what he was hearing. Epstein had seen Nickel play in the studio, and McCartney had seen him play with the Flames at the Flamingo. He had the skills, but perhaps more importantly, he knew every Beatles song by heart. His work playing Ringo's parts in the top six records ensured that Nickel would not have to practice any Beatles songs as they were already in his repertoire. After the Beatles' management hung up, Jimmy poured himself a drink. He didn't even own a suitcase. Jimmy donned his best suit and tie and headed towards Abbey Road Studios. Upon arrival, a producer whisked the wide-eyed Jimmy past the dozens of journalists gathered at the scene. Ringo's illness was already front-page news, and the people were eager to know what would become of the Beatles' first international tour. Jimmy stepped into the recording booth with three of the Fab Four. He shook each of their hands and did his best to avoid looking like a deer in the headlights. But John and Paul were cracking jokes and made Jimmy feel comfortable. George was a bit more standoffish. Jimmy sat behind Ringo's 20-inch Ludwig bass drum set and grabbed the sticks. His heart raced. Was this a tryout? They never actually used the word audition, but it sure as hell felt like one. Jimmy needed no sheet music as he knew every Beatles song by heart, but still, he was worried his heartbeat would be louder than his drumbeat. Brian Epstein and George Martin motioned for them to start from the booth. They started with, I want to hold your hand. Jimmy Nickel was flawless. His style was different than Ringo's, with more kinetic energy coming from his longer arms, but he didn't miss a beat. They played six songs, I want to hold your hand, she loves you, I saw her standing there, 
This Boy, Can't Buy Me Love, and Long Tall Sally. With each song, Jimmy loosened up as they all felt each other out musically. By the end of the final song, Epstein and Martin were grinning from the booth. They had found their stand-in. The tour was saved, at least for now. Once Jimmy had passed the audition-slash-rehearsal, the press was allowed into the studio. They crammed into the small room and fired off questions. Most involved Ringo's health or Jimmy's nerves. Each of the Beatles responded to the questions with their now-standard cheeky wordplay. After the press was escorted out, Brian Epstein asked to speak with Jimmy alone in his office. It was time to talk business. Once they settled in, he asked Jimmy about the largest concert he'd ever played, how well he knew the Beatles songs, run-ins with the police. Jimmy's mind was spinning as he responded to the whirlwind of questions from the business-savvy manager, but Epstein seemed content with Nichols' answers. The tour manager then leaned over the desk and asked Jimmy to promise him to avoid anything that would tarnish the band's name. No impropriety whatsoever. Jimmy agreed. By this point, Paul, John, and George came into the office too. That's when Epstein brought up Jimmy's salary for the tour. Jimmy was nervous talking money with them all there. Epstein offered 2,500 pounds. John Lennon immediately piped up. Good God, Brian, you'll make the chap crazy. After a brief pause, Lennon burst out, Give him 10,000 pounds! Everyone in the room laughed, and the paperwork got signed. Afterwards, Epstein told the three Beatles and the honorary fifth one to get some rest. They would need it. Once Jimmy got home, he barely had time to celebrate with his wife when a hairdresser and someone from the Beatles' wardrobe department arrived. The hairdresser fixed up Jimmy's hair into the now-classic Beatles mop top while another woman took measurements for a suit. The plane left early the next morning, so she had no time to tailor a new one. Instead, she made slight alterations to Ringo's suit. After the Beatles' crew left, Jimmy Nickel packed a borrowed suitcase. He could barely believe it. The next day, he would be on tour with the most famous band in the world. Early the next morning, Jimmy Nickel was picked up by the Beatles' chauffeur in an Austin Princess with the other Beatles already inside. At the airport, several dozen fans stood in the rain, bidding them farewell. After signing a few autographs for the pilots and crew of the plane, they were off. First stop, Denmark. When they landed at the airport in Copenhagen, thousands of rabid fans awaited them. Police struggled to maintain the peace, as some fans jumped the police barriers to get a better look at the band. When stepping out of the plane, Jimmy waved towards the fans, who let out a roar in response. He wondered if they even knew that he wasn't Ringo. An intense Danish security detail escorted the band off to the sports arena where they would start rehearsing for the show that night. The Beatles cut one song from the set list, I Wanna Be Your Man, since it included a vocal part from Ringo, and Jimmy was no singer. The trio spent hours teaching Nickel the intricacies and nuances of each song. He was a fast learner, and he felt more prepared than ever as Showtime inched closer. Jimmy looked at himself in the mirror in the green room. Ringo's suit was tight on Nickel's larger frame, and his square jaw looked different under his mop-top hair than the other Beatles' boyish faces. But he was ready. After the opening band concluded, the MC announced what the crowd had truly been waiting for. The Beatles. Paul, George, and John walked on stage, followed by Jimmy Nickel in Ringo's ill-fitting suit. Immediately, 
Jimmy was buffeted by the rumbling of stomping feet mixed with the cacophony of thousands of screaming fans in the stands. He picked up the sticks. Showtime. Jimmy had a terrible realization once the song began. He couldn't hear the others playing over the screams. At all. Within a few seconds, John Lennon realized the issue. It was a problem Ringo had dealt with as well, ever since Beatlemania had reached this fever pitch. John turned away from the crowd to face the drum set. From there, Jimmy could visually indicate the timing based on Lennon's strumming. As they went from song to song, Jimmy adjusted to the lack of audible feedback, and with the help of John turning around every once in a while, he managed to stay on track. When the show concluded, Paul thanked the crowd and apologized that Ringo couldn't be there with them. He then followed the apology up with, But give it up for our drummer Jimmy. For the next few seconds, screams of the fans washed over Jimmy. He was beaming from behind the drum set. Paul's small act of gratitude before the roaring crowd expelled the last of the butterflies from Jimmy's stomach. After the show, John asked Jimmy how he was doing adapting to the newfound fame and playing with such insane crowd noise. Jimmy responded with, It's getting better. After the show, the Beatles retired to their secure hotel. Around the base of the building, hundreds of fans still yelled up towards the penthouse, hoping to catch a glimpse of a Beatle. One Danish reporter described the scene, quote, Hysterical girls screamed like moonsick cats, cackled like hens in the spring, and whistled like punctured bicycle tires. Unquote. After the nerves and the chaos of the first show, Jimmy felt restless and decided to take a walk outside. He took off Ringo's suit and dressed in plain street clothes and walked right through security. He quickly realized that no one realized who he was. He walked on the sidewalk past the throngs of Danish Beatles fans and smoked a cigarette. He got a rare glimpse of Beatlemania from both sides of the security barricades. The next day, the Beatles traveled to nearby Amsterdam in the Netherlands. They were greeted at the airport by several women in traditional Dutch attire, presenting bouquets of flowers. Behind them was the usual horde of reporters. After answering some questions and signing some autographs, they headed to a studio where they would perform for a famous Dutch variety show. The show opened with animated images of each Beatle falling into place alongside their autograph signature. After Ringo Starr's face appears, it is immediately crossed out and replaced with a clearly hastily animated face of Jimmy Nickel. They began with a Q&A session with a translator. In the foyer on the bar, after me, sit down, echt, the Beatles. Uh, first of all, you introduce yourselves. George Harrison, Paul McCartney, John Leppard, Jimmy Nickel. Jij had nog een vraag gegeven uit Bangkok, nog een vraag. Nee, ik had een vraag. Had... Oh, ik wil vragen of Jimmy het moeilijk vond om die rol van Ringo zo ineens over te nemen. Ah. <coughs> You're on, Jimmy. Whether you find it difficult to take over the role of Ringo? Uh, no, not really. No. <laughs> as far as Ringo, I can never, um, I can never make up for what Ringo is. You know, how, how I just try. Um, until next Thursday. Yes. Well, you're sort of understudy. Yes, I am. You think of the great breaks? Oh, yes. Excellent. Treating you good? Enough. <laughs> How is Ringo, by the way? He's he's getting, I think he's getting better. Yeah. Oh, we're off. He's ill. <laughs> in the second portion of the show, they played a few songs on the small stage in the studio. Jimmy drummed from a large circular platform situated high above the others. 
During the show, several fans jumped up from their seats and began furiously dancing. Soon writhing Dutch Beatles fans poured into the aisles and then in front of the stage. The Beatles were just miming playing as the tracks were being played over the sound system. So when they began laughing uncontrollably at the fanatic Dutch audience, the songs played on. The variety show failed to provide any form of security, so the fans eventually danced their way onto the stage itself. Chaos erupted through the studio, and the credits rolled over the Beatles fleeing off stage, while the host desperately tries to rein in the rabid fans. That evening, the group took a tour of the Dutch canals, as fans screamed from both sides along their route. Some teens actually jumped into the water after them, and were later fished out of the canal by policemen. Jimmy could not stop smiling and waving to the fans. A banner hung from an overhead bridge that read, Get well soon, Ringo, served as a stark reminder that, for Jimmy, this situation was not permanent. That night, the four Englishmen, under a heavy security detail, hit the notorious Red Light District in Amsterdam. John Lennon and Jimmy Nichols split off from the rest and spent the entire night in various brothels doing drugs that Jimmy had never even heard of. Lennon recalled later that he and Nichols were photographed crawling out of brothels on their hands and knees, but the police kept it under wraps to avoid a scandal. The next morning, the Beatles woke up groggy, hungover, and behind schedule. They sluggishly climbed into their chauffeur's cars and made their way to the theater. The Netherlands' most popular band, the Hot Jumpers, were opening for the Beatles that evening. A guitarist from the Hot Jumpers asked the Beatles to sign his guitar. But after Paul, John, and George signed the instrument, he neglected to ask Jimmy to sign. Yet another reminder of Jimmy's role as a mere replacement. By 4.40 p.m., the announcer's voice echoed through the theater. Jimmy, John, Paul, and George. The Beatles. Jimmy's name being listed first by the announcer shook away any thoughts of inadequacy, and Jimmy really let loose on the drums. The crowd was textbook Beatlemania. Objects flying, fans climbing up and hanging from the steel rafters above the stage, people taking their shirts off, the crowd appearing as a single multicolored mass of humanity ebbing and flowing, their yells and screams competing with the Beatles playing. Several young women were injured as they were nearly crushed against railings, but the show ended before any serious injuries. As the Beatles made their way to the plane, joking with each other every step of the way, Jimmy Nichol felt fantastic. He had been in the groove during that concert and felt every bit of Beatle as the other three. But troubling thoughts bubbled up from his unconscious mind. Of course, he was rooting for Ringo to get better, but maybe he would remain sick for the duration of the tour. Maybe Epstein would see the obvious chemistry here and axe Ringo just as he had axed original Beatles drummer Pete Best. No, 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 no. Jimmy didn't let the thoughts linger. By this point, Ringo was still in the hospital with a 103-degree fever. Paul McCartney sent him a tongue-in-cheek telegram that read, quote, Hurry up and get well, Ringo. Jimmy's wearing out all your suits. Unquote. Jimmy just sat back in the first-class seat as John told another joke and George poured another drink, trying to savor every moment. Next stop, Hong Kong. During all of their flights and most of their late nights, the Beatles shared pills with Jimmy, an upper called Preludin, which allowed the group to thrive despite next to no sleep. So, this 30-hour flight to Hong Kong zipped by, 
in the haze of pills and endless complimentary drinks. Upon arrival in Hong Kong, the band endured another pass through customs, another press conference, and yet another hotel. Maybe from lack of sleep, or drug use, or just the whirlwind of being transported from one car, plane, or hotel room to another, Jimmy felt his nerves spraying. Paul and John noticed and asked Jimmy the question they had asked since the beginning of the tour. How's it going? To which Jimmy gave his oft-repeated response, it's getting better. Their show in a Hong Kong theater that night was somewhat of a relief. Most of the tickets had been reserved for local businessmen, military personnel, and prominent families in the city. Very few actual Beatles fans. Because of that, the crowd was uncharacteristically reserved and respectful. So, despite the noticeable lack of energy, the Beatles could actually hear each other and perform their most technically sound performance of the trip. Hong Kong served as the eye of the hurricane for their first international tour. The next day, the other Beatles continued to ask for updates about Ringo. The band was informed that Ringo was still ill, and Jimmy's percussion services would still be needed for the next leg of the trip. That afternoon, the group boarded a plane headed down under. Next stop, Sydney, Australia. Brian Epstein, who was still in London and planning to reunite with the band when Ringo recovered, had made it clear to the group they should not get their hopes up of seeing much of Australia. From record and ticket sales, it was apparent that Oz had an inordinate amount of Beatles fans, so security and scheduling had to be tighter than ever. After the usual press briefings and waving from hotel balcony windows, Jimmy decided to break Epstein's rules a bit. He accepted the fact that he wouldn't be recognized as a Beatle and could therefore use his anonymity to sneak out of the hotel to explore the city. After some sightseeing and buying a boomerang and a stuffed koala for his son Howie, he came across a cabaret nightclub called Checkers. Fancying some live music and a show, he went in. The current act was American singer and actress Frances Fay. Should I strip or should I sing? Faye had starred in a Bing Crosby movie and then started a successful nightclub touring act. She was famous for her raspy voice, sexual double entendres, and open bisexuality. In songs, she would either play the male part or scandalously switch out male and female pronouns. This being the 1960s, her act was controversial. She was also a huge Beatles fan a big enough fan to notice the man standing in for Ringo Starr when he walked in. She looked at Jimmy and smiled. From the stage, she proclaimed, We have a Beatle in the house. Between shows, Faye invited Jimmy backstage. They talked for quite some time before Faye invited Jimmy to play the drums for the next part of her act. Jimmy immediately accepted. I know a guy named Willie. Willie goes with Tilly, Tilly goes with Millie, what a ball. 
this is not dirty, it's the way I say it. <laughs> I know a guy named Joey. Joey goes with Maui. Maui goes with Jaime. And Jaime goes with Seymour. And Seymour goes with Georgie. And Georgie goes with Orgy. I'm not mad at you. Don't be mad at me. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I'm too hip to get mad. Cause I know a guy. He likes to shake, rattle, and roll. During the act, Jimmy relished in more freeform jazz drumming and put on quite a show. After the act, Faye invited Jimmy to play with her again sometime and gave him all of her albums as a gift. Jimmy told Francis Faye that he would love to drum for her again sometime, perhaps within the week once Ringo returned. And with that, he headed out into the Sydney night. However, when he returned to the hotel, he was stopped by security as they didn't recognize him. But I'm a Beatle, Jimmy explained. It took several calls and a Beatles representative from upstairs to clear Jimmy and allow him back in. The next day, the band traveled to Adelaide, where they encountered a crowd that dwarfed any of the previous. They boarded open cab cars and set off from the airport to downtown. Thousands upon thousands of fans lined the road, holding signs and tossing flower petals and confetti onto the road. Every part of the sidewalk was filled with Beatles fans, at least 10 people deep for the entirety of their eight-mile car ride. Jimmy couldn't believe his eyes. The people just kept coming. Even the Fab Three, who were used to the massive crowds of Beatlemania by this point, were flabbergasted. One of the Beatles' drivers noted that more people had come today to welcome the Beatles than had come to welcome the Queen. George Harrison quickly shot back, quote, I would think so. How many hit records does she have? Unquote. Police struggled to maintain order. In an interview, the police chief noted that security had to be ramped up, remarking, quote, You must maintain the most stringent vigilance against the small girl infiltrators in party dresses aged 10 to 24. They are more ruthless than Australia's best soldiers. Unquote. By the time they had reached the hotel, their ears ached. The crowd was overwhelming. They were rushed into the hotel and then up to a high balcony in an attempt to appease the crowd. The four bandmates peered out over the edge to a crowd of over 300,000 people. Every window of every building had people looking out. The streets were full. Even every tree branch was filled with Beatles fans. As Jimmy looked down at the throngs of manic fans, he was inundated by the borderline religious fervor of it all. There was no hope of saying anything to the crowd from the balcony. Even the best loudspeakers of the day could not compete with the screams of the fans, which were now louder than a jet engine. So, they headed inside for more interviews. An interviewer asked Jimmy, quote, Do you think Brian Epstein is going to wave his magic wand at you sometime and include you as a fifth Beatle or a stand-in drummer for Ringo permanently? Nickel thought about his response for a while before replying with a simple but honest, I don't know. The show that night was at Centennial Hall, by this point, Jimmy was locked in with the band, playing perfectly in sync. He was actually bolstered by the fact that even if he did make a mistake, the crowd noise of Beatlemania ensured that no one would hear it. Jimmy swung the sticks with a smile on his face. Across the world, Ringo Starr had been released from the hospital and was currently packing his bags for the trip to Australia. This would be Jimmy's last performance.
That night, they all boarded a flight to Melbourne, where they would meet Brian Epstein and the recovered Ringo Starr. Their flight over felt strange for Jimmy, who could tell the end was near. After both parties were smuggled into a nearby hotel, they all met in the lobby. Epstein was dressed in a sharp suit, while Ringo stood alongside with his trademark goofy grin. The Fab Four were finally reunited, and hugged and laughed with each other. Jimmy Nickel and Ringo Starr shook hands, meeting for the first time. The drummer's handshake represented an official changing of the guard. Brian Epstein shook Jimmy's hand and sincerely thanked him for his services and explained that he would be needed for one last interview and public appearance. To appease the fans, they were whisked out to yet another hotel balcony. The lucky fans crowded below got a rare sight of five Beatles. Well, now four Beatles and Jimmy Nickel. As the group smiled and waved at the fans, Jimmy felt strange. As the second drummer on the balcony, he was suddenly redundant. After the balcony, the group went in to answer more reporters' questions inside. Most of them were focused around welcoming Ringo back, as Paul, John, and George treated him like a long-lost family member. Jimmy was largely ignored by both the Beatles and the press. Afterwards, Brian Epstein asked to see Jimmy in his hotel room. The second the door closed, the manager berated Jimmy for all the times he broke curfew and especially for playing the drums for a burlesque act hosted by an open bisexual. What am I supposed to do if reporters catch wind of my drummer playing in a nightclub with a sexual deviant, he asked. Jimmy defended himself and Faye and told Epstein he intended to return to Sydney to play with her again. Epstein was having none of it. Jimmy had a one-way ticket back to London the next morning, non-negotiable, and until then, he would behave himself according to Epstein's orders. He would not talk to any press without the others, and he would absolutely not leave the hotel. That night, the Beatles partied in the penthouse. Jimmy joined them, but felt a bit left out since Ringo had returned. So he chose to make the most of his final day on tour and decided to break curfew. He snuck out of the hotel and went to a nearby pub. Within half an hour, he heard tires screeching in the parking lot, and soon two Beatles handlers barreled through the door before yelling, What the hell are you doing, Jimmy? Jimmy replied, What am I doing? I'm having a drink. The pair of Epstein's goons explained that Jimmy was to remain in the hotel. Jimmy shot back, But I'm not a Beatle anymore. They said, You're a Beatle until Brian puts you on that plane tomorrow. They grabbed Jimmy, paid for his drink, and took him back to the hotel. The next morning, Jimmy got up and grabbed his suitcase. He thought about saying goodbye to John, Paul, and George, but they were still asleep. Jimmy decided not to wake them and left without saying goodbye. Brian Epstein drove Jimmy to the airport. Once there, they did one final interview, which ended with Epstein saying in front of the reporters, quote, the Beatles and I are very, very grateful for everything you have done. You carried out a fine job for us, and we're very, very pleased. We hope you have a great trip back to London, and we wish you every bit of success in the future." Unquote. Before Jimmy boarded the plane, Brian handed him a gold watch. On the back was engraved, To Jimmy, with appreciation and gratitude, from Brian Epstein and the Beatles. Jimmy thanked Epstein, shook his hand, and gave one more thumbs up for the few news cameras that were there for his departure. He stepped onto the plane and out of the Beatles story. However, 
Jimmy Nickel was intent on writing his own story. On the plane ride back to London, Jimmy looked out the window and planned. When he arrived back in Britain, Jimmy Nickel was suddenly a hot commodity. Newspapers had front-page headlines hailing the return of Nickel, now dubbed the Fifth Beatle. Jimmy hoped to utilize his newfound fame as Beatle Number no. 5 to build a band of all-stars that could one day rival the Beatles themselves. Upon returning to his wife, she noticed a change in him, a certain confidence. Her husband was ready to conquer the world. Jimmy marched into Pie Studios and began making plans to cut a new record with his band, the Shub Dubs. Georgie Fame of the Blue Flames had kept Jimmy's drummer seat open, saving it for when he had returned. But Nickel turned him down, intent on being in charge of his own band. Fame felt betrayed. Jimmy Nickel was intent on blazing his own path, but began to burn bridges along the way. Jimmy almost immediately used his Beatles paycheck to purchase a brand new Jaguar. He was now driving around London in style, taking every interview and trying to remain in the headlines. With the clock ticking on the media spotlight, Nickel began hastily assembling a record. Jimmy didn't have a gift for lyrics, so he mostly retooled old classics, revamping big band hits into the modern rock and roll style. But the stress of being a band leader was getting to him. He was drinking more and sleeping less. He was almost never home. His wife, Pat, pleaded with him to spend more time at home with Howie, but Jimmy couldn't find the time. The Shub Dub's record came out in late 1964. Songs failed to chart. Jimmy Nickel once again made the papers under the headline, Beatle Number 5 Accused. The article was about his many traffic tickets from reckless driving and speeding in his new Jaguar. But Jimmy was no longer front page news. The articles about his traffic violations had fallen to page 18. By late 1964, Jimmy's wife, Pat, took their son, Howie, and filed for divorce. Jimmy was devastated, but he knew that success would take sacrifice. He decided to move back in with his mother so that he could spend as much as he could on the band. But the Shub Dub stopped getting gigs. His producer quit on him. The Beatles' tour money ran out. The checks stopped coming. He couldn't afford to pay his bandmates. Jimmy Nickel became bitter and resentful and blamed one man for all of his misfortunes, Brian Epstein. Jimmy was sure that he had stopped getting gigs and hadn't been able to get another record deal on account of the Beatles' manager. Jimmy knew that because he broke curfew and didn't follow all of Epstein's strict little rules that the overbearing manager had blacklisted him. This was untrue, but Jimmy was sure of it. Within a year of playing with the Beatles on their first international tour during the height of Beatlemania, Jimmy Nickel was without a band, divorced, bankrupt, and living with his mother. In an interview, Nickel said, quote, Standing in for Ringo Starr was the worst thing to ever happen to me. Up until then, I was quite happy making 30 or 40 pounds a week. I didn't realize it would change my whole life. Afterwards, everyone in show business said I couldn't miss. I was the hottest name there was. But after the headlines died, I began dying too." Unquote. As money ran low, 
Jimmy was forced to sell some of his equipment and Beatles memorabilia to make ends meet. He applied for welfare. But in late 1965, just over a year after touring with the Beatles, a band reached out to Jimmy to see if he was interested in drumming for them. This band was a Swedish instrumental group called the Spotniks. They toured extensively and were known for dressing like Soviet cosmonauts for their shows. They had seen the Shubdubs play live and wanted to see if the fifth Beatle would replace their current drummer, whose new wife would not allow him to tour. The Swedish group, unexposed to much of the British press, were unaware of Jimmy's divorce or financial situation. But for Jimmy, they were a lifesaver. He toured the world with the Spotniks, who were expertly managed. Each place they visited, they would cut a new record with local flavor. The Spotniks in Germany, the Spotniks in Tokyo, the Spotniks in Hawaii. The music wasn't especially bold, but Jimmy got to truly see the world and make a living doing what he loved. But after almost two years with the Spotniks, the gimmicks grew tiresome for Jimmy. Posing for album covers, wearing kimonos in Japan, sombreros in Mexico, it was all a little much. On top of that, the Spotniks manager wanted a squeaky clean persona for the band, which meant no drinking and no smoking marijuana, which Jimmy had secretly grown quite fond of in Mexico. So, one night, Jimmy vanished. This is where details about Jimmy's whereabouts get spotty, presumably by Jimmy's design. We know he fell in love with a woman named Julia Villasenor, a dancer and artist living in Mexico City. The couple got married and worked odd jobs before landing a gig playing for a variety show in Mexico City. They got a house up in the mountains out of town that soon turned into an oasis for traveling artists of all kinds. American runaways dodging the Vietnam draft, psychedelic explorers seeking new drugs in Mexico, musical nomads looking for a place to call home. Out of some of these vagabonds, Jimmy formed a new band of eclectic misfits that he called Blue Rain. Jimmy, now older with a long jet black goatee, but the same Beatles mop top, began building a recording studio and had grand plans of making an album that would showcase their blend of jazz, reggae, psychedelic, and rock music. Every night, they would stay up smoking, drinking, and jamming together. But in the end, the album never materialized. Making an album always took backseat to partying. So, the music they created ended up being improvised and fleeting. Nothing permanent ever came of it. Jimmy soon grew frustrated with his bands and his marriage. He was plagued by lingering thoughts of what could have been. With Eddie Cochran. With the Beatles. With Francis Fay. The missed opportunities gnawed at him. One day, during a fight with Julia, Jimmy worked himself into a rage. He opened a drawer and slammed something inside over and over and over before bolting out the door. Julia looked inside the drawer to see a smashed up gold watch. Engraved on the back was To Jimmy with Appreciation and Gratitude from Brian Epstein and the Beatles. Jimmy and Julia eventually got divorced. Blue Rain broke up. Their oasis for artistic runaways in the mountains closed its doors. And once again, Jimmy disappeared. He moved back to London, worked in construction for a bit, remodeling flats. He got on better terms with his ex-wife and son, Howie, who had just gotten a job as a sound engineer for the BBC. During this time, Jimmy was still reclusive. 
But through his son, Howie, Jimmy was invited to a Beatles fan convention in the Netherlands, where he had played as Ringo's replacement a decade prior. Nickel reluctantly accepted. The fans were thrilled to see the drummer again, who did interviews and even played drums for the Beatles' cover band at the end of the convention. This would be the final interview Jimmy ever gave and the final performance he ever played. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Jimmy Nickel was a ghost. He avoided interviews and reporters and remained just a piece of Beatles trivia for most. In fact, there's only one mention of the drummer at the very bottom of the Beatles' Wikipedia page. But still, to this day, people will report citing the aging drummer in London or Mexico City. Intrepid reporters have tried tracking him down to no avail. When reporters and fans asked Howie where his father was, he would get frustrated and often falsely report that he had died. To this day, Jimmy Nickel remains reclusive. Some reporters tracked down his place of residence in the early 2010s, but no one answered. However, through the window was a piano with sheet music. If that was indeed Jimmy's home, he never stopped playing. The last ever photograph taken of Jimmy Nickel was in 2005. He was wearing cargo pants with a long gray ponytail walking down the street in London. Whether he is still alive, and if so, where he is, is unknown. He would be 81. Jimmy was deeply affected by the international limelight, and then slowly losing it. But there are worse fates than being a has-been. At least, you had been. Had been touring with the most popular group on the planet. Had seen countless screaming fans, a peek behind the curtain of global fame, a view of the Beatles from both sides of the security barricades. In the end, Jimmy Nickel was always looking for success and achievement and was resentful when it always seemed to elude him. But really, he found success. Not in chart-topping hits and legions of fans chanting his name, but in jam sessions and smoky bars, improv jazz drumming in nightclubs, bongo drums around a Mexican campfire. He endured the climb up to the heights of fame, and he endured the climb back down, playing drums the entire way. In later interviews, the other Beatles would always think back on playing with Jimmy Nickel fondly. When Ringo Starr put his foot down about touring in 1969, Paul McCartney jokingly said they'd have to take Jimmy Nickel again then. Jimmy's line that he often repeated on that first international tour, It's getting better, always stuck with the rest of the band. So much so, that it even inspired a song on the Beatles' 1967 record, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The song is called, Getting Better. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, with story editing by Thomas Harlander. I could not have written this story without the incredible book, The Beetle Who Vanished, by Jim Birkenstad. Jim is known as the rock and roll detective, a moniker that is well-earned. So if you want more details about this story, I would highly recommend checking that book out, The Beetle Who Vanished. This is a story I've been wanting to tell ever since I saw a picture of Jimmy sitting alone in what appears to be a completely empty airport right before boarding the plane leaving Australia and leaving his time with the Beatles. It's a solemn picture with this shell-shocked drummer 
just staring off into space. It's a hell of a photograph. So I've compiled some of my favorite photos of Jimmy Nickel throughout the years, uh, from his time with the Beatles to the last ever photo of him, in a post available for free on Patreon. And while you're there, you can check out all of the Historian bonus episodes for just five bucks. The most recent one was a reading of Richard Nixon's unread speech that was to be made if astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin had become stranded on the moon during the Apollo 11 mission. So if you would like to support me and the work I do here, the best place would be through Patreon. But as always, thanks for listening.